please. Well, welcome back. Hope you had a good afternoon. This evening, we're going to continue this series that Jim and I have been doing on hard questions uh, that we come across in our faith. Now, before we actually get into tonight's question, I just want to say a word about uh, the series. Some people aren't comfortable with series like this. Some people say these questions challenge people's faith and they're better just left in the corner. Um, I can understand that, but I I can't agree with that. Uh, Because whether or not we ask these questions, these questions are being asked. And they're not always being asked among a group of people committed to a faith answer. A lot of times they're being asked in classrooms and in environments where people are very antagonistic to faith. And just to put all my cards on the table, I think we do our youth group a grave disservice when we do not ask these questions. Uh, Our youth's not here, so we can talk about them in their absence tonight. Uh, But... But it's amazing the number of young people who who grow up and they go to college, or maybe not even when they get to college, maybe even before they enter the the collegiate room, that their teachers and their professors will raise questions that if we've ignored all these years, it can shatter their faith. And it gives this impression that we've been hiding something for all these years. That's one of the things you see in some of the popular uh, material that's being written today. And did you know that the Bible says or the Bible doesn't say or that as if we've been hiding this from people. So I really appreciate uh, Jim designing this series and and pursuing these questions. And the way we do Bible classes and sermons in general here at Wilshire, we tackle the tough issues, not because we have all the answers, but because we believe that in a faith environment, it's safe to do so. And so that's why we continue this series and uh, why we're here this evening. Now, before we get to the actual question of tonight, I want to take you to the well of the Senate, the United States Senate, in 1850. Congressman or a senator by the name of John Calhoun, who would eventually become one of our vice presidents of the United States, is is speaking to the Senate and speaking to the country in the midst of incredible turmoil that will eventually, in 11 years, turn into the Civil War. And one of the problems that Mr. Calhoun or Senator Calhoun is addressing is the coming division in the United States. Here's just a portion of his speech. The strong ties which held each denomination together, speaking of religious denominations, formed a strong cord to hold the whole nation together, the whole union. But as powerful as they were, They have not been able to resist the explosive effects of slavery agitation. The first of these cords which snapped under its explosive forces was that of the powerful Methodist Episcopal Church. The numerous and strong ties which held it together are all broken and its unity gone. They now form separate churches, and instead of that feeling of attachment and devotion to the interests of the whole church, which was formerly felt, they are now arrayed into two hostile bodies, engaged in litigation about what was formerly their common property. The next cord that snapped was the thread of the Baptist, one of the largest and most respectable of the denominations. That of the Presbyterians is not entirely snapped, but some of its strands have given way. 
What he's talking about is that the religions of early America, of the 1800s, that used to be kind of a backbone of support and unity in the country, were dividing over the issue of slavery. Now just think about that now in 21st century America. Churches dividing over whether or not slavery was acceptable to God. Can you imagine that? If you're struggling, let me help you. From the minutes of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in 1861 in the Confederate States of America, James Henry Thornwell stood up to defend the Confederate Church's position on slavery. He said, we come down to the age of the New Testament and we find it again in the churches founded by the apostles under the plenary inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These facts are utterly amazing if slavery is the enormous sin which its enemies represent it to be. His argument is, just read your Bible. Slavery is in the Bible. And if slavery is so wrong, why was it in the apostolic church? Why did the church seem to go along with it? And so all these states in the Union saying that slavery is wrong, and all these churches telling us to be quiet about it, need to just go back and read their Bible. Well, now to be certain, the Christian role in ending slavery in the United States, and I would argue in the world at large, is undeniable. So, so before we get into the discussion of what the New Testament says, let's just be clear Every legitimate historian acknowledges the role of Christian faith in bringing about an end to slavery. The great names, John Wesley and William Wilberforce and John Newton, look at your history books and you'll find a significant role that they've played throughout history in ending slavery. But the question tonight that I want to talk about is why did God seemingly condone slavery in the New Testament? Now, push pause on that for just a moment, and let me tell you why this is such an important question. It's not that our country is trying to bring about slavery again. I don't think so. Thankfully, we live in a country in which we look at the horrors of the past, and we have tried to correct them. We could do a better job, but we acknowledge the horrors of slavery. But that's not why this issue is brought up. The reason this issue is brought up is because people are trying to deny the voice of the church in other social issues that's going on today. Because most people in America acknowledge that slavery is repugnant and disgusting and an evil part of our past. If they can make it look like Christians condoned it and accepted it and practiced it without any reservations then all they have to do anytime the church speaks on any issue they don't like is, you used to support slavery. Sit down and be quiet. And that's really the issue that's at work. If they can undermine the authority and the credibility of the church on this issue, then any other issue that comes into play in modern culture, the church is not allowed in the conversation because you used to support slavery. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is check a CNN story dated back in 2011 the story was titled, How the Bible Was Used to Justify Slavery and Abolition. And the author at one point in the story said, Christian opponents of slavery elevated biblical principles of justice and equality above individual passages that approached exclusion. He wonders if a new biblical approach is needed today as people grapple with the polarizing issues like gay marriage. 
In other words, if, if we can call into question the Bible on this issue, then homosexuality, gay marriage, abortion, all of those other sticky social issues, the church doesn't have a leg to stand on. So that's why it's an important question to ask. That's why critics of Christian faith are bringing up the issue. So what do you do? What do you say? Well, I think we have to be honest with the text. Let me show you a few texts. You've already seen this. George read some of these to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll just run through some of these. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's, it's actually an odd place to find the discussion. It's actually in the, mar in the middle of a marriage discussion for Paul. The church in Corinth has written him questions about uh, marriage and sex and, and divorce and remarriage and all these things. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he's dealing with those issues, but he makes this point when you get to verse, uh, verse 20. It's a pretty important point for Paul. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Verse 21. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. There's some questions of translation there. Some translations make it sound like Paul says, even if you can gain your freedom, don't seek it. Don't try to get it. I'm not really sure that's the proper translation of this. What Paul is saying, though, in 1 Corinthians is, look, whatever state God called you in, if, if you were unmarried when God called you, don't run out and try to get married now. If you, were, if you were a widow, don't try to run out and get another husband now. Remain in the state you're in. And Paul has a reason for this, because there's some type of persecution or coming distress. And he says, because of what's coming, you're better off. But some people look at this and say, why doesn't Paul say, get out of slavery? Slavery's wrong and slavery's evil. And you do anything you can to break it. Sounds like Paul seems to be at least tacitly accepting of this. Well, you get the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul writes to the church, he always includes this section of individual instructions. I'll mention something about this later, but, but he goes through this list of husbands and wives and children, and then he turns to slaves. Ephesians chapter 5, or chapter 6 rather, in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. Now, if Paul had stopped there, we'd feel a lot better about things. But he didn't stop there. Verse 9, And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with, them, with him there is no partiality. Now, here's the problem with that. There are slave owners in the church at Ephesus, and what does Paul say? Does Paul say, you're Christians now, you can't own slaves? No. Paul says, okay, just be good masters. That kind of sounds troubling to us. He does it again in Colossians, the text that was read earlier. 
And so when people read these texts and they listen to Paul, we kind of understand Paul saying, okay, as a good slave, you can't control the situation. You're in a, there's no way out really. So, so you just be a good slave. You work, you do what's asked of you, you honor God. That's okay. We're, we're okay with that. It's that part where Paul turns and says, now masters in the church, people owning slaves. And it's just this point that the critics of Christianity step in and say, see, Christian faith is okay with slavery. And it may not just be the critics, it may be some of us also who read that and say, I don't like that. That's fair. So what do we say? How do we respond? As people of faith, what do we do with texts like these? Well, I just have three things that I think needs to be thrown into the hopper and thought about. The first thing that has to be brought into any conversation is this. No New Testament writer ever condones the dehumanizing, abusive, racist form of slavery that we are all too familiar with in American history. The problem is when we read the term slave and master in New Testament terms, our mind automatically goes back to those horrible images of early America and what happened to people brought over from Africa. And, and because that term slave is so laden with that image, we assume that that's the same kind of slavery Paul is dealing with. And it's not. Never in the New Testament does Paul or any other writer condone dehumanizing, abusive, racist treatment of any human being. Never in the New Testament. Now, there are questions of Old Testament texts, and I'll punt that to Jim's sermon last Sunday. How God is bringing people not to where they, he wants them exactly, but he's moving the needle, if you will. But in the New Testament world, the issue of slavery was not exactly as we think about it sometimes. Now, to be completely fair, that form of slavery was in practice in parts of Rome. There was the gladiatorial slaves where people would go out and they would capture prisoners of war and they would turn them into some type of combatants to sit and watch kill each other. That was at work in Paul's day. People who were slaves in Rome were probably captured in slavery. If they weren't captured in slavery, they sold themselves into slavery because of the economic situation and the way the economy worked. Scholars have estimated that the number of slaves in ancient Rome, first century Rome, was 66 to 90% slaves. We're not talking just a few people. We're talking most of the people you bump into on the street in first century Rome were slaves. They were different kind of slaves. They weren't just agricultural slaves. They were household slaves. And they were, they were uh, civil servants, if you will. Some of them would raise the prominent places in first century Rome. Slaves could often buy their freedom. Slaves could, could acquire things to pass on to the heirs. They could marry. They could do things. So it's not the exact same as the type of slavery we're familiar with in modern America or, or early America. In fact, Paul references one of these, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, when when Paul is trying to use this illustration of what a, 
what the law of God was like. You know, the, the Old Testament served a purpose, Paul says, and it was, it was like a tutor, like a tutor, someone to bring you to Christ. That word tutor Paul uses, that was a household slave, someone entrusted with the care and education of a child. And some slaves in the first century world would acquire this status. Oftentimes slaves would, uh, they would acquire things and they, they would be freed at the death of their owner. One slave even wrote in first century, on, had written on his tombstone, slavery was never unkind to me. Now I'm not saying this fully justifies and fully answers the issue, but what I am saying is that that be careful not to equate the two types of slavery you read in the New Testament and the kind we experience in our history. Uh, more than often, one writer says, more than often it was not free workers, not slaves who were abused by foremen and bosses because the owner of a slave had something significant to lose if he abused his slave. You, you can abuse the guy you hired, <laughs> but don't abuse your slave because... He, he belongs to you. And I know that language is, is repulsive to us, another human being belonging to someone else, but, but in the first century world, in the first century culture, that's, that's got to be thought of. There is plenty of evidence that the early church used to purchase the freedom of slave members. And so the, the first thing, anytime, you, anytime you're in a conversation and this question comes up, you, you have to think, what was slavery like in the first century world? Yes, there were the abuses, but slavery was also a form of protection for people. Because in a pagan culture, slaves had no rights. No rights in government, no rights in purchasing. And let's just say, let's just say Paul said, set all your slaves free. Where do they go? What do they do? What voice do they have now? They had very little voice. And so the second thing that I think is worth mentioning in any conversation about this is simply this. If Christianity was an overtly anti-slavery movement, the message of the cross would have been missed. In other words, if every letter Paul wrote was strictly about ending slavery, as much as I believe Paul was for that, we'll show you in just a minute, but it would have been missed. Just think about a few years before Paul, about a hundred years ago, you've seen it in the movies, you've read it in your history book, Spartacus. The slave rebellion, these gladiatorial slaves who rebelled and they went out and Rome tracked them down and killed them. What's left of that? But, but if Christianity can change people from the heart, slavery will take care of itself. You never find in Christian faith an outside approach to these issues. It's always an inside approach to these issues. If you can change someone's heart, then you can change the other issues. Paul wasn't going around announcing that he's trying to overturn the economic system of his day. He's not trying to get people to accept his message of anti-slavery. He's trying to change their heart. And if he changes their heart, he can slowly begin to change the other things of culture we despise. And I would argue that's exactly what happened. That because hearts were changed and because lives were affected, that all of this slowly began to change through time. Because Christianity is about the message of the cross. 
And it's the cross that changes lives. And I worry about this sometimes, about the way we approach other issues, even in our day. Jesus didn't die on a cross to end homosexuality. He didn't die on a cross to end adultery. He died on the cross to forgive us of our sin and recreate us. And when you do that, all that other stuff gets taken care of. That's Christian faith. It's a movement from the inside out. But just if Paul had done that, if you take a person and you end slavery in the first century without the message of the cross, they're still lost. So if Paul conquered all of ancient Rome and they put an end to slavery, mankind is still hopelessly lost in sin. But if you teach the message of the cross and you change hearts, then you bring about the salvation and the other issues come along the way too. And I think there's a lesson to us in the church. I think the church needs to have a strong, credible voice in the social issues of today. But the primary purpose of the church is to change hearts first. And the other issues will follow. And I think it would do us some good to maybe approach things like Paul sometimes. Well, that's the second thing that I think is worth saying. The third one is kind of a big picture issue. And it's simply this. When anyone argues over God's view of slavery, I want you to notice that that God is a God who frees slaves. That is the narrative of Scripture. That is the underlying message beginning in the book of Exodus. When Moses stands at the door of Pharaoh, and he says, I'm here to announce to you that my God said, let his people go. And every year Jewish people would sit around the Passover meal, and they would recall the story of God's deliverance. When Moses was writing to the people, Moses says, you be careful the way you treat others. Because Deuteronomy 15, you too used to be a slave. In Hosea, when God is trying to argue for how, what it means to be God's people, he uses this imagery of an auctioneer at a slave house. And God says, Hosea, I want you to tell my people that I want them back, that I'm still here, I'm still being faithful. And you go stand down there with your your wife who's left you and your wife who's cheated on you and stand in that slave auction house and at the end of the bidding, I want your hand to be raised as the highest bidder to pay the price of redemption. Because we serve a God whose history is ending slavery. Look at the language of the gospel. Luke chapter 4. Jesus walks into the synagogue. It's his hometown synagogue. They hand him a scroll of the book of Isaiah. Jesus picks up the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61, a very well-known text, a text anticipating things. And Jesus reads Isaiah and says, God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and to let the oppressed go free. 
Sometimes sit down with your Bible and look how many times you see this word and this concept of redemption. It's the price paid for release. That's the story of creation. That's the God we serve, a God who, a God who buys back slaves, a God who frees the slaves. And it's a narrative repeated over and over and over When Paul describes our life as Christianity, he does it in the language of a freed slave in Romans chapter 6. We serve a God who frees slaves. So how does the church live that out in a day where the whole culture was accepting as in Paul's day? You simply take what's wrong with culture And you infuse into it the truth and love of God to begin the reversing process. And so Paul writes to the church in Colossae and says, If you have slaves, don't treat them like culture says you can and should. You treat them with respect. Because God shows no partiality. And and you let them stay in your household. I told you that all of these texts of the, of the times Paul mentions masters and slaves, they fall into a type of writing in the New Testament we sometimes call household codes. A household code, we've got it in non-biblical literature, in essence says, here are the responsibilities of the people who live under your roof. Husbands, treat your wives this way. Wives, respond to your husbands this way. Children, obey your parents. Parents, treat your kids with respect. Don't don't aggravate them. And slaves, slave, you serve as you're serving to the Lord and masters. Paul's writing to a first century world where these, these people were part of their households. And Paul says you treat them with respect. If Paul had told them to send them out, where would they go? If Paul had released them all, what would they do in a culture where they have no voice and no power? But Paul says, you treat them as your brother, your sister in Christ. The most remarkable book in the New Testament that has anything to do with this is one you're already thinking of. It's the book of Philemon. When I was in college, I had a roommate or a friend he used to read the book of Philemon and say, why did God even put this in the Bible? It's so short, it doesn't really address any doctrine. And then he read the book. And he said, now I know. You know what the whole book of Philemon is about? There's a, there's a man named Philemon to whom the book is written. The church seems to meet in his house, the early verses of the book suggest. Philemon is a slave owner in the first century world. His slave Onesimus, whose name happens to mean useful, seems to have stolen something from Philemon. And knowing Roman rule and Roman law that a slave who has done this is at the mercy of the owner, that if Philemon decided to kill him, he had every right under Roman law to kill him. And knowing this, Onesimus seemingly runs out of town and he finds his place in Rome. And somehow, when in Rome, he comes across Paul. 
Scholars have always wondered, how, how did this happen? I, I think that they knew Paul from all those house church meetings in Philemon's house. And Philemon, Onesimus probably knew that Paul was somewhere. And so he looked him up. You read the book of Philemon and you find out that when he goes to Paul, Paul, like he's prone to do, does a Bible study. And Onesimus becomes a Christian. Now picture this in your mind. Paul talking to Onesimus, the slave. And he says, Onesimus, you need to go home and make things right. Would you go if you were Onesimus? Paul says, I'm going to send you with some letters and I want you to go. And I want you to go out to the house. I want you to go to Philemon's house. You can hear Onesimus' response, can't you? I'm not going back there. Because if I go back there, he's going to kill me. And if he doesn't kill me, he's going to make my life miserable. I am not going back to Philemon's house. Are you nuts, Paul? I can hear Paul say, we don't treat people that way. Because we understand that in God's eyes, there is no partiality. So Philemon, I'm going to write you this letter. Onesimus, I'm going to write you this letter. I want you to put it in your pocket. And I want you to travel back to Philemon's house. Now, can you imagine Philemon standing at his front porch one day? And he looks out over the horizon. And he says to his wife, that guy, that looks like Onesimus. Why, if that's Onesimus... He stole from me. He's got a lot of nerve coming back to me. You know he's thinking that because he's a man. <laughs> he owes me money. And if Onesimus sets foot on this property, I'll either kill him or I'm going to make him pay for what he's done to me. And I'm pretty sure Sister Philemon says, Philemon, you remember Paul? He says, Masters, you treat your servants with respect. Because you both serve the same master. And God shows no partiality. Well, okay, but let's see what he has to say. And Philemon, standing on his porch, receives Onesimus, who says, Before you say a word, I want you to read what Paul wrote to you. Paul? You've heard from Paul? Where did you hear from Paul? And Onesimus pulls from his pocket this letter from the Apostle Paul. And it says, receive him back. Not as a slave, as a brother. If Christianity is serious about the transforming power of Jesus Christ, and if people do exactly what Paul called them to do, and if they follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, slavery will end. And guess what happened? Onesimus, whose name means useful, Paul says, is now useful to me. And he's useful in the kingdom of God. Is slavery condoned in the New Testament? 
as a cultural place, yeah, but Christianity says, wait a minute. We don't play by these rules. We change things. And through the power of the gospel of Christ, it has changed. Thanks to people who believe the teaching of the New Testament. Now, there are two other things before we're finished. One is, we don't, in modern-day America, deal with the same kind of issue. But we deal with the underlying issues that brought about slavery in our country. Unfortunately, we still live in a country where people are judged by their status in culture. By how much money they have, by the kind of car that they drive. They're still judged by the color of their skin. And if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we do not work the way the world works. We tear down the barriers, and we see people as creation of God, of whom we both serve the same master. And it's that underlying issue that proves to be the hardest, because we can outlaw slavery, but still in the heart of man is that challenge to love and see people for who God created them to be. That's why Christianity is a message of the heart and not just the external social issues of the day. It's deeper than that. There are people in places in this country or in this world that still suffer with the issue of racism and the issue of slavery. In India... Some people have said slavery is more rampant than it ever was in early America. You drive down the road in Oklahoma City and you see people advertising against sex trafficking, the taking of innocent people and turning them into just an owned property to be disposed of. And if we are the people of God, God, then we bring about the change that Jesus Christ died to bring about. Paul envisioned the church as the one place that the world could look as a microscope, as, as the beginnings of what God is ultimately going to do in all of creation. That's the church. Ephesians chapter 3, he said, It's been the wisdom of God since, since before the foundations of the earth that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be seen. And so he calls on the church to show the principalities and powers of the world, what God has in mind. And to the church at Ephesus, it was simply this. There is not a Jew, there is not a Gentile, there is a body and a temple of Christ. Now you live that out in the church and you show the world that. And in the church of Galatia, it was this. That we are all children of God by faith. For as many of us as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And therefore, there is no longer either... Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, or bond or free. We are all one in Jesus Christ. And that begins in the church. And it begins to spread as the church takes the message of Christ to the world. That's how we answer the question. And we answer the call not just by simply explaining the text. We answer it by living the text and being the church of the New Testament. Well, that doesn't answer all of it. There's lots of other questions and lots of other issues, but I think that's a good start. 
So this evening we offer that invitation to be part of the church and the community of people who are bringing about that transformation in the hearts and lives of men. And just as Paul said in Galatians 3, you become children of God by faith when you're baptized into Christ and you're clothed with Christ. If you've not done that tonight, we invite you to make that decision while together we stand and while we sing.